Thank you. Thank you for, uh, for loving us so well and for taking care of us. I know um, when I talk to many of my friends who are in uh, similar ministry, they don't, have nearly, they don't have it nearly as good as I have it. So um, thank you. We love Grace Fellowship. Uh, we now come to the end of this series we've been doing in the month of October, uh, a series on what we call the five solas, or the five onlys of the Reformation. Uh, Martin Luther, John Calvin, the other Reformers, they didn't necessarily write these, but these were five ways of summarizing what the Reformation, uh, if its contention with the church of its day, which was, which was the Roman Catholic Church. And we come to the last one today. We've looked at Scripture alone, and we've looked at uh, grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And today we come to the one that really is both the root of the others and the fruit of the others, and it is to the glory of God alone. All of the other solas find their root, all of the other alones find their root in the glory of God, and they bear their fruit to the glory of God. The glory of God is the tapestry on which everything else is woven. And so I need to say just up front that I I feel a lot of pressure. Uh, I feel a lot of great weight when it comes to preaching this. Because I believe that if I grasp it, and if you grasp it, then it will change everything. I believe that if, that if we really wave this banner, solely Deo Gloria, to the glory of God alone, that if we wave this banner over our church, if we wave it over our homes, if we wave it over our parenting, if we wave it over our Work if it's written on your tools and it's written on your spanking spoon, right? If, if this banner, if we, the more and more that we anchor ourselves here, that we, rather, rather than anchor ourselves, that we hold fast to this anchor, then it will transform everything. You can cajole people uh, to do things. You can coerce people. To do things that you want them to do. But the best way to motivate people to live differently is by presenting a superior glory. By presenting something that is so amazing that they cannot help but live for it. And so that's my aim this morning. And you can understand why I feel a good amount of pressure that's a tall order. So we just need to know up front that, uh, that, I'm, that I have set myself a finish line that I'm not going to cross. All right? I'm breaking stuff up here. Before I get started, uh, there's a book that I would point you to uh, from which I've derived a lot of help myself. But it's also helpful in this area of what does it mean to live a life that is oriented around the glory of God alone. And it's a book by John Piper named Desiring God. Um, so... I would encourage you to get a hold of this. You can do that on Amazon or any number of bookstores, but 
he goes through very uh, through all these different areas of the Christian life and anchors them in this truth. And so I think that would be a good purchase for you. Many have called this sola, the glory of God, the heart and soul of the Reformation. I would call it the heart and soul of the Christian life. This is the heart and soul of all our living. If you were, if you were hiking through the woods and you had a compass, every time that you needed to reorient yourself in your travels, you would pull the compass out. And the first thing that you do, at least what we were taught in Boy Scouts anyway, right, is you've got to find true north. Once you find north, then you know which way you need to go to get to your destination. Friends, the glory of God is our true north. And if we would reorient ourselves around this, I believe that we would see God more greatly at work in our lives. Not that he isn't already working in your life, but that we would see and acknowledge it more. I think that our Christianity would become contagious. Or if you're not a Christian this morning, that you would maybe begin to consider that there is something much larger than what you've been living for. And that's a, that's a as Paul pointed out in our confession time, both Christians and non-Christians have this problem. That we live life for so much less. And so here in this one, we have the great treasure on which we can sink ourselves. So without further ado, let's go to God's word to Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11. We're going to read verses 33 through 36. Just to give you some context, what's come before this moment. Um, Paul, if you, want, if you want to know, if you want a good summary of what the Bible teaches, of its complete message, um, or at least a good summary of its complete message, then the book of Romans is going to be your friend. Now, you need to know that the book of Romans is no lightweight, right? It's no short book. It's, a, it's, a, it's some tough sledding in places. You'll, you'll, need to really, uh, you'll really need to dig in because what Paul is doing is he's, he's basically trekking up this mountain of God's grace, right? He begins by talking about God's wrath, actually, against our sin and how we can't have righteousness through the law. And then he reveals that there's another righteousness. And we talked about this a few weeks ago, the righteousness that's revealed through faith in Christ. And then he spends the next several chapters unpacking what that means. What does that mean? What is that? What is faith? What does faith look like? What does that mean for my sin? If salvation is by grace, can I keep on sinning? And then right before this, he spends talking, he spends time talking about God's Choosing God's election of Israel, of Jew and Gentile. And there's some very, some very thick, deep stuff in there. But what's interesting is he points out that the Jews and the Gentiles are one body. Right? That the Gentiles have been grafted into this one tree. And then he says something really interesting right before what we're going to read. He says, God has consigned all to disobedience. So God has shut in, has made prisoners, has trapped all to disobedience. Why? So that he may have mercy on all. God, and this is Paul picking up a theme from earlier in the letter. Jews and Gentiles alike are guilty. And yet, because we are guilty in our disobedience, that allows, that gives God the opportunity to show mercy. 
And this is what it leads Paul to do in verse 33, Romans eleven thirty-three. Oh, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, this is, um, this is a tall order. We want to bring treasure out of your word so that our hearts are stirred. Stirred not to think more about ourselves, but to, to stand like Paul does in wonder and amazement and awe of you. I cannot do this. Holy Spirit, would you please help? Help us to see such a vision. Help us to exclaim with Paul, Oh, oh the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. Captivate our hearts. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. C.S. Lewis, in his, uh, his last book of the Chronicles of Narnia, The Last Battle, says this, there is a kind of happiness and wonder that makes you serious. There is a kind of happiness and wonder that makes you serious. You know, we live in an age of cynicism and doubt. Uh, Our national and personal Conversations are full of complaining and bitterness. And so there has never been a moment, well, there have probably been many moments, but it is for moments like this, more than ever, that God's people must be people of serious happiness, of deep and abiding joy. In the 17th century, a group of pastors and theologians gathered together and they drew up this question. What is the chief end of man? What is man's main purpose in life? What is the goal of all of our living? And they answered it this way. Man's chief end, his main purpose in this life, his why, is to glorify God. And enjoy him forever. Notice they didn't say purposes. They didn't say man has two ends. One is to glorify God and one is to enjoy him forever. No, they said man's chief purpose is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. God's glory is our greatest joy. And so that's my, that's my goal today. That's what I want to convey to you today. I want to convey this, that God's glory alone is the driving purpose of your life and the source of your greatest joy.
that for all of the other ends and purposes that you pursue throughout your day, whatever it is that you set your mind and heart on when you wake up in the morning, chief among them, first among them, the tip of the spear, ought to be this, the glory, the glorifying of God and the enjoyment of him. A serious happiness in God, a true delight in God. That is, that is our aim. That is what Paul feels when he writes what he writes here in Romans 11. He is overwhelmed with joy. He's overwhelmed with a sense of God's glory. So here's how we're going to unpack this. First, we're going to, we need to define what we mean by God's glory. What do we mean by God's glory? Then we're going to see where God's glory is revealed. What are the areas in life where we see it? And then finally, how do we, how do we apply that in our life? How is God glorified in my life and in your life? What are some tangible ways we can walk away with this? First, God's glory defined. What is it? Glory, of course, means honor, magnificence, majesty. But the word I think I like most is radiance. When you think of radiance, maybe you think of the sunrise and the beams that span out from it or the sunset that turns the sky orange. I think of a diamond put in just the right light. Its inner qualities brought out so that you may see its radiance, its glory. Uh, the Greek word is doxa. It's where we get our word doxology from. This is a doxology that Paul writes here. We sing a doxology at the end of our worship service. The Hebrew word, though, carries with it this idea of weightiness, of heaviness. Not, uh, not, not physical weight, but significance, importance, as in when you say we're, we're going to talk about some weighty things. People of influence carry more weight with you. That's what the that's where that's where the Hebrew word for glory has some added uh, has some added meaning for us. And so God's glory is the radiance of all that he is, his holiness, his power. His mercy, his goodness, his justice, all of the attributes and characteristics of God, when they are on display, are called his glory. And because those things never fade or diminish, God's glory never goes away. It is a constant part of who he is. He is more majestic, more splendid than anything else. Thomas Watson a pastor from a previous century says this, that a king is just a man without his crown and robe. People can have glory, but it's temporary. It can be removed. When you take away a, man, a king's crown and his robe, he's just another man like you. But you cannot take away or diminish God's glory. It never goes anywhere. It's constant, just like a diamond a diamond's value is still its value, whether the light is shining on it or not. But we are called as God's people to bring attention to, to highlight, to exalt God's glory. God can only ever be glorious because it is who he is. God's glory cannot be surpassed. 
There's no one better. There's no one mightier. There's no one holier. You see this all over the Bible, uh, particularly in the Psalms. If you were to read Psalm 24, for instance. If I remember where Psalms is in my Bible. Psalm 24. This is just one example of a, a hymn of praise. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. He's founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Lift up your heads, O gates. Be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Or you find it, for instance, at the end of Job. Job, if you're unfamiliar with the story, was a good man who had a very hard life. And the reason that he had a very hard life, because God allowed it to happen. Now, there's a lot in there that we could unpack. But what's interesting for at least our talk today is what happens at the end of Job. Job maintains his faith. But he expresses a lot of doubts and questions and ultimately wants to meet with God so that so that he can have his case heard. And this is what we find in Job chapter 38. This is how God approaches Job. He says, then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. It's a pretty serious uh, place to be. The Lord of all creation just told you to man up, right? I will question you and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Who shut the sea? Who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made clouds its garments. Have you commanded the morning since your days began? So it goes on and on. Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you? Have you entered the storehouses of the snow? Have you seen the storehouses of the hail, which I have reserved for the time of trouble, for the day of battle and war? God's glory is unsurpassed. There is no one like him. And what Job needed to hear most at this moment in the story, this part of his life, was not, hey, buddy, it's going to be okay. But a presentation of God's utter majesty to say, you do not know all that you think you know. I am far higher and far greater than you could possibly imagine. And we need the same. Just look at how Paul handles it in Romans chapter 11. He can't say anything else in verse 33. The first thing he says is, oh. Friend, when was the last time you stopped and said, oh, I've been to the Grand Canyon twice in my life. Sadly, both times I went, uh, one was in was, was when I was an adolescent. And so you move uh, you move from the days of wonder and awe as a young child to adolescence where nothing is cool and you don't even want to pay attention. Right. 
And so as we're driving across the desert, my dad would wake me up and he would say, just just look out. Look at look at look at the flatness I'm from Alabama. I'm used to hills and trees. There are no hills and trees. Right. Look at the way that the clouds leave shadows on the ground. And of course, you know, because I was 12, I was like, you woke me up to show me nothing. <laughs> right. Um, and then we get to the Grand Canyon. Now, I don't remember as much the first trip, but I remember on the second trip, I was 14. I was a freshman in high school. And as my friends were uh, filing off the bus, this was, a, this was a band trip, a high school band trip. As my friends were getting off the bus, they were saying, hey, it had just started to snow. If I, at any other point in my life, it would have been absolutely beautiful. Um, and my friends were saying, hey, don't you want to come see? And I said, oh, you know, it's just a big hole in the ground. I've already seen it once. I wonder, by the way, I did eventually get off the bus. Are, are we kind of like that with God? Like, do, do we, do you ever, ever stop and just say, oh. That's all Paul can say is, oh. And I wonder if that's not maybe even the main problem with the frenetic pace of our culture and the constant chime of the phone and the watch and everything else is that we never have the opportunity to just say, Oh, we never just look. That's what Paul does. He is lost in wonder at the glory of God. And we need those moments. We need to be stopped in our tracks so that we can marvel to know that there are things greater than ourselves. I mean, that's the difference between my personal opinion. I'm not a developmental psychologist, but I can pretend to be one. Right. That's the difference between a child and an adolescence with some, I'm just going to go ahead and say, sorry to my teenage friends, I'm about to throw you under the bus. But, right, that's the difference between a child and adolescence and teenagers. Is for a child, the reason there is so much awe and wonder is because there's no sense of self-awareness. They don't think about themselves, right? Now, a development of self-awareness is necessary. That's part of maturity. You need to understand and know yourself. Right. That's so we have to develop that as we get older. But what happens in the adolescent years is that self-awareness kicks in and it goes all the way to 120. Right. It doesn't come on gradually, but for the most part, just skyrockets. Right. And so self-awareness becomes self-absorption. We have a friend who does youth ministry. And one of the ways that he summarizes ministry is uh, ministry to students. He talks about middle schoolers. The prevailing question is. Do you like me? And then for high schoolers, the question changes and it becomes, do I like you? Right. But it's all it's all about I and this self-absorption. And it's part of maturity to grow through that out into an awareness of ourselves, but not an absorption with ourselves. And I wonder if I have a hard time being amazed because I am too inwardly drawn. I cannot marvel enough at the majesty of God because I'm too busy peering into my own belly button. Is that where we are? We need to marvel. We need the glory of God because we're only transformed when we come to that point of marveling. How do we get there? Where do we see this? And that's our next point. Where is God's glory revealed? The first place I think that most people, maybe all people, would say glory is revealed is in creation. Psalm 19, 
We read Psalm 24 and we read Job. Both of those talk about God's glory in creation. Here's how Psalm 19 puts it. The heavens declare the glory of God. And the sky above proclaims his handiwork. So when I look at the moon and the stars, they're telling me something. They're not just telling me scientific things, though that's there. But they are revealing something. They are revealing. They are a tapestry and a piece of artwork that points me to their creator. Day to day pours out speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. But it's not enough, is it? God's glory revealed in creation isn't enough to, I mean, it stirs us, don't get me wrong, but it's not enough to stir us towards God. That's actually what Paul says in Romans 1, that God's power and his wisdom and his knowledge are revealed in creation, but what we do with it is we worship it. We worship the creature, the creation, rather than the creator, It's accurate what John Calvin said. Our hearts are idle factories. We are in the business of manufacturing other things to worship than the one that we should worship. So God's glory revealed in creation isn't enough. We need God's glory revealed in a different way. And that is in salvation. And that is what Paul is so excited about in these verses. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. It's as if Paul is at the top of a cliff trying to stare down into the Marianas Trench, the deepest part of our earth. How deep. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom of knowledge of God. Who who could possibly have foreseen that to trap all in disobedience is then to come in and bring mercy? This is not man-made salvation. This is not anything that the wisdom of man could have dreamed up. Who would have thought that God himself would need to take on flesh in order to ransom his people? For every other worldview, God is angry and God is ready to punish. But in our worldview, yes, God is justly angry. And he satisfies his own wrath with his own son. That's the good news. That brings us to marvel. How unsearchable are his judgments. My ways are not your ways, says the Lord. How inscrutable are his ways. That word inscrutable, beyond tracing out. I can't follow all the ways that he goes. I come to a point where I have to stop because I can't see any further. That's how Paul glories in God. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who's been his counselor? You know, you and I, to get very far in life, we need the advice of other people. We need the counsel and direction of other people to make plans, to know what's good for us and, not, and what's not good for us. God doesn't need that. He needs no counselor. He needs no outside wisdom. He knows his own mind. Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? God is a debtor to no one. He owes nothing to me. His ways are so good that he can only give. He can only be generous. I have no claim on him. He does not owe me a thing. In fact, 
What Paul is saying is that God's glory in salvation ought to bring us to our knees. Bring us to the end of ourselves. So that we can say, oh. In fact, God rescues us so that we will say that, so that we will give him the glory. Romans 11:36. for from him and through him and to him are all things. Now, you can think about that in terms of creation. He created from him. He sustains creation through him and all of it is for his glory to him. But Paul is primarily talking about our own salvation Our salvation comes from him. It's by his grace. Our salvation comes through him by the person and work of Jesus Christ. And it is ultimately to him. It is for his glory. We are saved to glorify God. I've got some great news. Your salvation is not about you. We read from Ezekiel 36. It's not for your sake that I am about to act. It is for my namesake. What I am about to do, I do because my name deserves to be glorified. Now, that would sound selfish if you or I were going to say it. That would be rather arrogant for me to say that my name deserves to be glorified. But what if there were someone so good, someone so pure, Someone so generous, someone so loving, someone so just that you could not help. In fact, that they actually did deserve every good word ever spoken about them. That is God. He says, my glory, I will not share. I do not give it to another. God deserves to be glorified. And he knows this, that when we glorify him, it is best for us. When we give him honor, it is good for us. And that's why those two things are wed, his glory and our joy. The more that we worship, the more that we adore, the more that we glorify God, the happier, the more joyful we become. Because we are now living into what we were originally created to be. That is what it means to glorify God. It is the purpose of. Of everything that God has done. He doesn't do it for us. He does it because he deserves to be worshipped. If you read the book of Revelation. Right. If you where where God gives this picture of the end. Don't get distracted by all of the different imagery and symbolism used. But if you see what the purpose and end of all of creation is. What you see is God being worshipped and glorified. So if you and I don't learn how to glorify God, heaven will not be a happy place for us because that is the purpose of heaven. The purpose of the new heavens and the new earth is for us to spend eternity glorifying our God, the God who saved us. We receive benefit, yes, but the benefits are not the end. The benefit, I mean, the, the end is that God gets the glory The purpose of evangelism, the purpose of Christian mission is to make worshipers out of rebels. So Christianity is not a self-improvement program, though you do get better, hopefully, most of us. Nor nor is the church a, a civic organization whose mission is community service. 
Though we do some of that. Christianity is not about moral improvement. Christianity is about giving glory to the one who has made us and has saved us. That is its end. That is our end. So we want to be a group of redeemed people who long, who, who glorify God, who long to see ourselves glorify God and others. That's the, that is the foundation of everything. That is the fruit of everything. God is worthy of worship. Jesus left heaven and took on flesh and embraced a shameful death in order to gain worshipers and bring glory to God. That was, that was why Jesus left heaven. So what does that look like in your life? If serious joy in God's glory is the greatest purpose that I can live for, if I exist to glorify God and enjoy him forever, how do I get there? Jonathan Edwards puts it this way. God is glorified not only by his glories being seen, but by its being rejoiced in. When those that see it delight in it, God is more glorified than if they only see it. Edwards uses the image of honey. I can know that honey is good because you can tell me. I know that honey is sweet because you can tell me. But to truly enjoy honey, I must taste it. And truly, to truly delight in its goodness, I must taste it. I must have some for myself. How do we do that? Just a couple of suggestions here. First, I would say, work towards being astounded with God. A la Paul in Romans eleven thirty three. Just like Paul, we need to regularly hike up this mountain of God's grace and salvation so that, like Paul, we can marvel We need to commit to gathered worship because of the frenetic pace of culture, because it never stops, because the to-do list never goes away. We need Sabbath. We need space to stop and push everything else to the side and wonder and adore God alone. We need this time. We need space together. Weary souls need other pilgrims to help carry them along. We need to hear the voice of God in the scriptures. We need to sing. Get this, even if we don't feel it. It's interesting that what Jennifer read, that Martin Luther wrote hymns uh, not to convey an emotion, but a message. Not to give us feelings and warm fuzzies, But to teach us something, we need to listen and we need to sing and we need to do it together. We need to marvel at God together. We need it. Continually meditate uh, meditate on the things that have been said, right? We, we, We need to put God in front of our faces continually. It's hard to delight in the voice of a God we won't even listen to. I wonder how many of us, talking to Christians now, how many of us use God's grace as an excuse to not enjoy more of God's grace? Right? We've traded in a covenant of works, but we've picked up the covenant of laziness. Right? God beckons us to 
the word. He beckons us to prayer because it's in these means that we find more grace, more grace. Find your joy here. Ask God for help here, especially especially when you sense your eye wandering off to lesser joys and prevailing sorrows. Pray Psalm 37, 4 for yourself. Delight yourself in the Lord. Pray that for yourself. God, help me to delight myself in you and in nothing else. Cultivate a God glorifying vision of your work and life. This is one of the things that the Reformation brought us, and it's actually one of the things in which the Reformation changed the world. It's where where we get this idea of the Protestant work ethic. You see, in Martin Luther's day, the only people who really were doing necessary work, the only people who were really important were the clergy. They were the priests. They were the monks, right? God-honoring work could only be done by them. But what Luther and the reformers pressed out was this idea. Luther said this, or at least it's attributed to him, that the milkmaid can milk cows to the glory of God. That everyone's work has value because God is in or over everything. That it's not just the church. It's not just the clergy that have value. My work has value. I can bring glory to God by being the best milkmaid, farmer, sign maker, car salesman, whatever. Right? So begin to ask the question and cultivate this idea. How do I sell insurance to the glory of God? What does that look like? Maybe it means that I'm kind to my employees. Right. Maybe it means I'm honest when others aren't. I don't I don't know all of that. I'd be happy to help you work through that. Neil actually is really good at doing that. But cultivate a God glorifying vision for your work because it matters to God and you matter to God. Cultivate a God glorifying vision of your time and money. Mike Horton, another uh, another theologian, says this. God doesn't need your good works, but your neighbor does. What would a God-glorifying vision of your time and money look like? What would you pursue less? What would you pursue more? What would you pay less for? And what would you give more to? God is glorified. He doesn't, God doesn't need our wealth. He already owns it anyway. It's all his. God doesn't need our good works. They can't buy anything with him. But there is a world of lost people and suffering, and they need what we have. And so cultivate a God-glorifying vision of your time and money. Let's take, let's take God out of this little partition over here where we've put him. Well... Not like we could really put him there. Right? And let's see that this, this truth, the glory of God alone, spans over everything. Not just how I sing, not just how I pray, but how I wake up in the morning and how I go to bed at night. Oh, that we would have this enraptured vision of the glory of God. And it really will change everything. So... We learn in Scripture alone that we are saved by grace alone, 
through faith alone, in Christ alone. And when we learn that, and when we enjoy that, what else can we do but give all the glory to God alone? To God be the glory, great things He has done. So love be the world that He gave us His Son, who yielded His life and opened the life gate that He may go in. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Let the earth hear His voice. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Let the people rejoice. O come to the Father through Jesus the Son and give Him the glory, great things He has done. Let's pray. O Lord, that we would be a people possessed of a singular vision, the majesty and the magnitude of Your glory. God, would You so dominate our hearts and our minds with this glory that it would change everything, that we would see new value in the work that we do and the people that we work with, that we would receive strength for the tough road of parenting, that for the young, we would, re- we would receive a vision of what you would have life to look, look like, for the old, that we, would, that we would look back and consider all of the great things you have done and yet still not Not hang up our spurs, but keep writing. Keep going to your glory. Until our eyelids close at last. And we can can say with countless saints before us, my only hope in life and in death is that I belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. From Him. And through Him and to Him are all things. To God be the glory. Amen.